0: Take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 11. You know, the, the trip, uh, I guess one of my biggest prayers is that from this trip I will be, um, from our trip to Myanmar, I will be uh, reminded continuously of what God has done and what God is doing there, and I will be constantly reminded to uh, pray for the guys Are y'all anything like me? I get a glimpse of God's glory and I see him do something amazing or I uh, read a part of scripture and I see it and at that moment it causes me to worship at the very moment. And even my obedience has a tendency to be a little better at that moment. It's like, wow, it's like I just saw a glimpse of God's glory and now I just want to obey God. But then, for some reason, we forget. It's almost like we forget the glory of God. As scary as that sounds, we should never forget it, but we do, right? And we fall back into that trap of back to church, back to the same old thing. Here we are again, doing the same thing. And the impact is short-lived. I don't want that to happen I want the glimpse of God that I saw as I went through Romans with these men to impact me for the rest of this year and the rest of my life I want to be changed are y'all like that you want to be changed but it's almost like okay here we go again a little bit more do you fall into these same traps am I the only one It's almost like we need to be reminded over and over again. Show me your glory, God. I need to see it so that I will be reminded to obey you and worship you with all my heart. Well, what we're going to do tonight is look at a passage where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, God's working in a great way to cause him to worship. He hits the end of a section of theology of doctrine, heavy doctrine, and it just drives him to worship. And at the same time, he's writing scripture, so it's just an amazing thing. We should be where Paul is by the time we get to this spot. So somehow I've got to get you all the way to Romans eleven thirty-three for you to really worship the way he does. But I would suggest that most of you in this room have probably studied Romans 9 to 11 and probably Romans 1 to 11 Many times. uh, Most of you in this room have probably read Romans before, correct? Hopefully. Uh, Numerous times, hopefully. And the truths that we found in this book are staggering. And they should drive us to worship just like Paul. And I found it very interesting that the next section right after worship is the application section that, that Mark got to teach the men about. And ultimately, worship of the mouth and worship of our hearts ends up being worship in our actions. So, in order for 11:33 to 36 to fit and for our hearts to be there, as soon as our hearts are there, rather, we're ready for Romans 12 to 14, where it talks about loving without hypocrisy and loving our enemy and blessing those who, when they persecute us. So we must understand that doctrine or theology leads to doxology, which is worship, right? And worship is demonstrated not with just what we say, but what? It's what we do. The greatest demonstration of worship, as MacArthur make, makes the point, is our obedience. <laughs> if we really understand the glory of God, we're going to then do what? We're going to obey him. We're going to say, he's master, he's Lord, okay, whatever you say. When we don't obey with a pure heart, a heart that's wanting to submit to him, it's ultimately because our glimpse of God's glory has gotten small in our minds and we've forgotten about how good and how great our God is. Right? So here, before we get into application, let's look at this worship section and see where it gets Paul. We're in Romans chapter 11. Verses 33 to 36. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for revealing to us that this is who you are. Father, we pray that we will understand these words. And that they will be the echoes of our heart too. And that, Lord, then, because our hearts are recognizing who you are, that we will then obey you this week, that we will worship you with our obedience. Oh, God, I pray that everyone in this room gets a glimpse of your glory, that we may then obey you this week and bring pleasure to you. Oh, Father, thank you for all that you have done. Help us now to learn from you and grow in grace and knowledge of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have here the concluding doxology. The providence of God, his sovereignty, has been mentioned all the way through Romans 9 to 11. That God has a plan for his people. It's obvious through chapters 9 through 11. He's chosen a people for himself. He is working to accomplish his plan. The plan includes the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, we see that God judges a people and God chooses a people. It started out being Israel, being the chosen ones, while Pharaoh was the one that was hardened. Remember, the Jews were delivered. But God used Pharaoh in order to deliver his people and show off his name. And God chose a people out there. Then Paul continues on and says they're still responsible. The Jews now are responsible for the rejection of their Messiah. But even in their responsibility and their rejection, this is part of God's plan too. Where God now has turned the tables. Now the one that was receiving blessing is now the one that's under the judgment of God. The Jews are under a partial hardening. All right. So, what are we seeing about God's plan? It reverses. It's turned. It's it's, it's it's just the way God is. He takes, and the way you might think it to be, the powerful Pharaoh, the powerful Egypt, he says, no, I'm going to harden you, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to save a small group of slaves. I'm going to deliver them, and many of them will be my chosen people. Then he turns around, and now... The people that the Messiah comes to, the great number of Jews he comes to, now do what? They reject him. But that's all part of his plan. Why? So that he can then bless the Gentiles. That's us. It's almost like it's been turned upside down. God's plan is so amazing. He thinks totally opposite of the way we think. His providence and his glory is great. And that's what happens to Paul in chapter 11. He's sitting here meditating, and as he's writing, he's thinking about this glorious plan of God, how he's turned everything upside down, and God chooses. And look at verse right before our passage in verse 32. Look, it says, For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Because what's going to happen is, is God's going to then turn it back around again. <laughs> because one day all of Israel is going to be saved. And the G- Gentiles as a whole are going to reject him. And God is going to still save Israel. So everything, it starts out, he flips it over, then he flips it over again. And why? So God is shown to be the merciful one. And everybody else is shown to be what? The The sinner. We're the sinners. We're the disobedient ones. Everybody is deserving of death. Everybody's deserving of his judgment. But God is compassionate. He has a plan to show that he is a merciful God. And now Paul breaks out into worship. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. God thinks different than us. Theology leads to doxology. A right understanding of God leads to worship. This is why Paul bursts out into worship. Worship is defined as acknowledging the worth of someone or something. In this case, Paul acknowledges the great worth of the only true God. We can learn a lot from this. The righteousness of God has been shown. God has been shown to be righteous throughout the book. And I think it doesn't just... Go in verse, in chapters 9 through 11. I think he sees the whole thing. I think he sees the whole book of Romans now. God's righteousness on display. All the way along. God has been demonstrated to be righteous in 118 to 320. In what way? Anybody? In his just judgment of sinners. Everybody deserves judgment. And God is just. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. One eighteen. But then also God's righteousness is demonstrated what? In the saving of sinners. Justification that we can be declared right by God. What a plan by God. That he takes sinners like us. That we can be declared right by him. And God is shown to be righteous through this. And then God is shown to be righteous by taking sinners like me and you. And making us look like his son. We can put to death sin in our life. Why? Because the spirit lives in us. Romans 8. And God demonstrates his righteousness. And then we saw in in, in Romans 8. At the end of Romans 8. We see the whole idea that God's righteousness is displayed in saving sinners all the way to glory. In glorification God's going to take people like me and you. Us sinners. We're going to heaven. Only God could do something like that. He would declare us right, set us apart, change us, and then take us to glory. And we are joint heirs with Christ. His righteousness is on display, isn't it? Everywhere you look, way to go, God. And then we saw in 9 through 11, God's righteousness is even displayed in the election of his people. His sovereign choice, it's his choice. And he does it, why? To display his name. He judges some and he saves some. And why? Because he's righteous. And he's showing that he is a merciful and compassionate God. So, God's on display and what does Paul do? He breaks out in worship. We see it in this passage in Romans 11.33. The worship is like a hymn. That is composed in three verses. And each of the three verses have a couple of lines of explanation. Paul is in awe of God. And he explains in the first verse of his hymn in verse 33. The unlimited aspects of God's glory. The unlimited aspects of God's glory. We see it. Oh the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. And unfathomable are your ways. He starts out with three aspects of God's depth that should bring wonder: the depths of the riches of God, the depths of the wisdom of God, and the depths of the knowledge of God. When we think of depths, I think of uh, just recently they found a whole bunch of new creatures in the bottom of the ocean. Did y'all see that on the news? It was on the. It was in some of the. It was on the news. I even saw it when I was in Myanmar. It's kind of exciting. I got some news they found new creatures that they had never identified before they were there god knew about them <laughs> they've always been there god created them on the you know on the specific day that he made everything right but the whole point to this the whole concept is is the ocean is so far deep that we can't even comprehend how deep it is nobody's been there no one's been there it's like god god is so deep all that God is, we can't even comprehend how big he is. He's so huge. His plans are so amazing that it should just cause us all to stand and put our hands over our mouth and go, wow, you're awesome. You're so much bigger than I can comprehend. Your depth of riches is amazing. I think the first one here with the riches he's, is an overall glimpse of the – character of god the riches of god would be all that god is in light of all we have seen throughout romans his sovereignty his love his mercy his justice he is much bigger than we can comprehend but as we examine this glorious plan of god in christ we are brought to get a small glimpse of how big god is he is so much bigger and you know i've i've studied this book now Romans just Romans for five years maybe even more in depth and I think it's just absolutely staggering the glory of God that's revealed in this book somebody if somebody ever comes up to you and says well that's just Paul's logic I'm thinking you're crazy nobody could come up with something like this not just this one book in the Bible It's so amazing to have a plan that would reveal God's glory and not exalt man. The whole book from verse 1 all the way to the end is all about exalting God. No religion ever comes up with a book like that. Every false religion is always about exalting man. That's what the Buddhists do. Buddha's exalted. Here, the whole book of Romans is about exalting God it's so deep with his glory that paul goes it's too deep your riches are too deep to even comprehend these truths must never become old to us folks for if we've forgotten these we've forgotten what god who god is I think about this guys most of you in this room have already forgotten more theology than these the the pastors we've trained Most of you in here have forgotten more than they've learned. What I mean by that is is you've studied these truths. You've heard great truths. You've heard so much. Our lives should be so different in worship because we've heard so many amazing truths. But yet we come back and we still hear that there's bickering and gossip and backbiting then what in the world is going on with us we've seen glimpses of theology that should make us all stand and go god you guys that have been in seminary you've been studying great truths we should be in awe of god these guys are just starting to get some of these guys in Myanmar are just starting to get little glimpses and you can just see it in their faces like, oh, my whole world is turned upside down now. Everything I thought the opposite is true. Oh, I hope, folks, I hope you can cry out with Paul. Oh, the depths of the riches. Both of the wisdom and knowledge of your of God. The wisdom here is the great depths of the wisdom of God is also seen in His glorious plan for Israel and us. This brings to mind the wisdom of God and saving a people for himself. And it may seem absurd to humanity. Humanity sees the world from a totally different perspective. But God's wisdom in revealing his glorious plan and, and saving a people for himself is so contrary. Look over at 1 Corinthians 1. This is how the world Thinks of God's wisdom, First Corinthians 1.17 It's so opposite. For Christ did not set me, send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's wisdom is so deep and so wide that his plan is so amazing that he would save sinners like us through a crucified Savior. is truly staggering. And yet the world looks at that and goes, foolishness. But God's wisdom is far beyond our comprehension. It's so deep. And his knowledge is the same way. While it may be argued that wisdom and knowledge are similar, I would argue that it refers more here to God's special relational knowledge that he has already mentioned in context. This refers to the depth of God's fore-loving knowledge of his own. This points to God's foreordained knowledge. The knowledge has come to be seen in both God's foreknowing a chosen people, both from Gentiles and Jews, and then even the foreknowledge of his great plan for Israel in the future. So Paul worships God for his overall rich character, especially seen in his wisdom and his plan for his people. This should spark worship in our hearts. God's character is beyond our comprehension. God's wisdom is deeper than we can fathom. God's sovereign knowledge is beyond the length of our imagination. I have to admit, When I see those numbers that I talked to you about today. The numbers of 100 million people in those two countries. Those two little spots that don't know God. There's a tension that happens, right? One of the tensions is, why aren't we telling more people about the gospel? That's a normal tension, correct? But then there's also this, why did you choose me? Why am I a part of your plan? Why did you open these truths up to my mind? Why did you bring the preacher to me? God is so great. He is so amazing. Why don't we worship more? Why not? Because I think often we hit it we get it here, but we don't get it here. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think we hear these truths and they just go in our minds and we think, okay, I got it. I'm this kind of Calvinist or I'm this kind of reformed teacher or, okay, I got that doctrine. But it doesn't hit here. Oh, God, please change our hearts. Don't you agree? If you know these truths, we should be awing God all the time. The Apostle Pauls are awing God right now. He's worshiping God because of these truths that everybody in this room has heard. You have heard it before. This is not new stuff. We should be the greatest worshipers in the planet, shouldn't we? And yet churches that have great doxology are the worst worshipers. The ones with great doctrine are sometimes the quietest people. The most, ch- why? I don't get it. We see a football game and a, somebody scores a touchdown and we go crazy. But we see the glory of God that he would save a wretch like me and we praise God for whom all blessings flow. And we sing like And then we walk out and we gossip and we backbite and we sin. Do you see, am I the only one that sees the disconnect here? America should be a gigantic, boiling, beautiful display of worship. We have all the resources. We have tons of resources. yet, it's the opposite. In many places, you go to foreign countries that people are getting the gospel, and they're in awe of God. Am I the only one? Do you understand what I'm saying? The depths of the riches of God, the depths of the wisdom of God, the depths of the knowledge of God. And the incomprehensible God. Look, how unsearchable are his judgments. Not to be searched out, not to be fully found are God's judgments. His judgments include both his judicial decisions and the rest of his executive decisions. Everything that God has decided and is deciding and will ever decide. They're unsearchable. Everything that God does, his decisions. And it should bring us to marvel. We should wow him over his discernment. He knows what's best. This brings to mind, again, while God is sovereign, sovereignty is hard to understand, as we have seen in 9 through 11. We should not cower from seeking to grasp it. We should want to know it more. Now, I know. Sometimes you hear the sovereignty of God, and I remember Steve Lawson preaching a sermon in chapel. And he said, "God's favorite doctrine is so- the sovereignty of God." And I remember, <laughs> I remember at the at that time going, "Ah!" You say, "Why? Why are you angry?" Because I was hearing the sovereignty of God all the time. I heard it in every class. It's like, okay, I get it. And here's this guy talking about the sovereignty of God again. He says it's God's favorite doctrine. What about His love? <laughs> My problem was, is that that time, it was here, but it wasn't here. At that moment, it was here, but it wasn't here. I wasn't enjoying it. I didn't realize that God's sovereignty is a wonderful thing. It's a great truth. You don't have to trust in yourself anymore, you fool. Mike, trust in the all-sovereign God that's in control. I think it really didn't click in until... I got out and the events of New Tampa hit. When you have to live it, then you really figure it out. It's like, oh, I got to trust that God's in control here, not just preach it. And then I really worshiped God. It's like, God, yes, thank you. You are in control. Praise the Lord. You are good and kind, and your decisions are great. They're unsearchable. I can't always get them. They're far beyond my comprehension. And I worship you for that. Because you are good and great. You always make the right decisions. And your, your ways are unfathomable. This means God's ways are impossible to understand. Infinitely beyond our ability to understand God's ways and his actions in this world. His actions as we have seen in saving me and you and judging those that don't choose him. His ways go far beyond our comprehension. Now when Paul says this, it's very important. He says it after revealing God's ways. This is what God has already been revealed in the book of Romans. How God's way is to judge and give mercy. So we don't always understand why. We don't understand why he judges some and why he chooses others. I remember when I read this verse to the guys, verse 13 of chapter 9. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau, but Esau I hated. When I read that verse, ooh, it didn't go over very well. Some of them looked at me like, oh. That one's not a good one. (laughs) Let's throw that one out of the Bible. Right? Hard to hear. Not good. But his ways are unfathomable. I don't comprehend it. Because after all, if you look at Jacob's life, he's what? A liar. Esau was stolen from. Why did he choose him? Because God's ways are unfathomable. He does what he does and he knows what's best and he saved Jacob and he made Jacob Israel and he declared him right and God chose a people why because God's ways are far beyond mine and that's good because I would mess it up good example of this is anytime I used to pick a football team or a basketball team I always failed it's always God's ways are the best. God knows what's best. He knows and thinks and does things far beyond us. I have to admit to you, I don't know why he picks me. I don't understand why he chose me. It was nothing in value of me. Nothing. I can think of a billion people he could pick instead of me. <laughs> Yet his ways are far beyond my He is such a glorious God. Mankind should marvel over this. Instead, mankind mocks this. Millions follow gods made up in their own minds, and they reject the sovereign only creator. It's important to note that this does not mean stop trying to figure out God's ways. This doesn't mean, okay, stop. No more reading your Bible. Don't try to figure out the sovereignty of God. That's not what he means here. He means you can study it and study it and study it and study it. And you're never going to plumb the depths of how amazing God's glory is. You can study this book till you're, you die and you can live till you're 90. And you're going to stand back at the end of your days and you're going to say, God, you are so Bigger, so much bigger than anything I can comprehend. I should just put my hand over my mouth and say, way to go, God. You are awesome. That's what this book's about. Can you believe it? We get to study this thing. (laughs) I am truly joyful here. We get to study this. We can search and search and search to know the glory of God, and we're never going to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) But it's a glorious adventure, isn't it? Studying it. Oh, what a privilege. What a privilege. Unfathomable are his ways. And then we see in verses 34 and 35 the limitations of the nature of mankind. How am I doing on time? If I was, if I was in Myanmar, I'd have you all stand up so you don't go to sleep. And then you can sit back down. If you get tired, you can always move around a little bit. It's okay. I want you to focus. This is great truths. Great truths. Aren't they great? Look at verse 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be given back to him again? Now Paul moves to explain how far humanity falls short in comprehending God's glorious ways. This is all worship. There's two questions that are rhetorical questions, and they have the same answer. No one. The answer is assumed. No one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Or who has became his counselor? No one. It's assumed. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No one. He starts with the first one's. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The first question is from Isaiah 40, verse 13. It has two parts. In effect, Paul states in a rhetorical question, and he says this in effect, No finite human being has enough wisdom to comprehend God's ways and judgments. No created human is able to tell God how he should do things. We can't understand God's mind. Put it real simple, you won't get it. And we surely can't tell God how he should do things. Can we? So we stand up and say, God, I don't like the way you're doing this? How many times do we shake our finger at God and he goes, who are you talking to? I'm God. Be quiet. Quit complaining. I'm in control, not you. If you understand who he is then this will be our echo of our hearts. God is glorious. and Isaiah 40, verse 13, it speaks of how God can accomplish great things for the nation, though they are in bondage to Babylon at that moment. God is able to save, and nothing can stop him, no matter how bad it got for them. Listen, everything we see in this world sees, the world says, is Loss. Doesn't make sense. Everything that the world looks and says. That's a catastrophe. Everything's falling apart. Or the world looks and says. What in the world's happening over here? God sees it totally different. He sees. This is his plan. It's working out perfectly. We look at the world and we see chaos. God looks at the world and says. Perfection. My plan's being accomplished. (laughs) Now. I know many of you in here are saying, what about all the evil? What about all the evil? God will judge. God will show his justice. God is righteous. God is holy. God's in control. Trust him. God, who are we to stand up and say, why do you do it this way, God? We shouldn't. God's in control. No man can think like God. You don't do it. We don't think that way, do we? We think the opposite of God. No man can tell God what to do either. No one in this room can ever stand up and say, I think you should do it this way. He's God. And if we truly understand who he is, we will worship him for that truth. That he is not like man. He is not like my thinking. Praise God. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I am so thankful that God does not do things the way I think. Because if he did, he would destroy the planet. Because I know I would destroy the planet. God thinks different than me. Praise the Lord. And the second rhetorical question, no one has... Anything to offer God. Boy, this one won't go well. (laughs) But this is worship. Do you get this, ladies and gentlemen? The seeker-sensitive church. They say worship is loud music, exaltation of man, right? But what does God's Word says? This is worship from God's Word. Who has given to him that it might be paid back to him again? This literally means no one has first given to God, hence No one deserves repayment. Look, we—I hate to tell you this. Some of—I think everybody in this room has heard me preach this before, but that's okay. It's a good reminder. No one has anything to offer God in this room. Did you hear me? But what about my gifts? Uh Oh, (laughs) you don't need your gifts. He gave you some gifts, but he doesn't need you. Do you understand? No one in here has first given to God. Hence, no one deserves repayment. God doesn't owe us anything because we haven't earned anything in God's eyes. Do you understand? And true worship says that in your heart. Do you understand? True worship doesn't say, exalt me. True worship says, I don't have anything to offer you, God. You're God. And all that I have that is good is from you. So praise you. God knows. We don't. God is in control. We aren't. God is worthy of worship. Not us. Now Paul summarizes everything in these last phrases. And he answers, why? Why? No one can think like God. He answers why no one can tell God what to do. He answers why no one has anything to offer God that deserves repayment. He says, for from him are all things. For through him are all things. For to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The reasons are found in verse 36 there. Let's look briefly at them. Three reasons God deserves all praise and all mouths to stop. For from him are all things. Literally, God is the source of all things. God is the source of all things. Just meditate on that fact this week. One truth. God, for from him are all things. He's the source of all things. For through him... Are all things. God is the means by which all things are accomplished. Everything is accomplished ultimately by God's providential plan. Whoa. Do you understand how big that is? That means nothing is an accident and nothing is a chance. All things. Through him. And finally for to him. Are all things. And ultimately God is the goal of all things. Literally all things are for God's glory. This is worship. God you deserve worship. You deserve glory. Nothing is about me. It's not about me. It's about you. And here is a man that's just finishing up writing Probably the greatest book that's ever been written. I would argue that Romans has got to be one of the best, most amazing books in all the Bible. And Paul is writing this through his secretary, dictating this man masterpiece. And if there was one man that could stand up and say, I did it. Give me a hand. The opposite is true. He says, all of this is by your work, and all of this is for your glory. It's all to exalt you. God is the giver of all good gifts, wisdom, salvation, glory. Everything good is from God. He is the giver of mercy for undeserving sinners like me and you. All for his glory forever and ever Amen. So does everybody agree with the worship? We all stand and we say, God, you are glorious. You deserve all praise. You have done it. You are amazing. There is nothing that deserves praise. You are the only one. So turn your Bible one page over. Verse 9, chapter 12. You say it. Are you ready to worship him this week? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligent. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't need explanation of that, most of that, do you? If you know the God that saved you, if you know that God, and your heart's echo is the same doxology, your life should match, verses 9 to 21. Would you not agree? Father thank you thank you for your word you are far beyond our comprehension you have saved us not because of worth for us not because of any value in us but because you are a glorious and merciful God now Lord help us help us to understand these truths to meditate on these truths and worship you with our lives help us lord to worship you not only in what we say but in what we do lord oh lord please burn these truths in our hearts that we might honor you as you deserve we pray this in the matchless name of christ our savior